And I'm going to begin reading in verse number one in just a moment, but I, I want to go ahead and, and bring you up to speed as to where we are in the book of Revelation. The first part of this year, we began this study, and Revelation chapter one opened to us here about the vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. The beauty about the book of Revelation is many people get excited about it because they think it's a book of events and the Antichrist and all these things. But I want you to know that the title of this book is The Revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything about this book all points back to him of whom it is rightly due. We looked at chapters 2 to 3. Those were the uh, chapters where Jesus gave a message to the church representative of today. And I believe as you look at those seven messages, they're very pertinent to what we're finding today. And then we begin working through the tribulation period, a seven-year tribulation period. Revelation 20 then is the millennium. It's a thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ on this earth. Satan is bound for a thousand years. And then last Sunday night, we looked at Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, and noted here the great white throne judgment. It's a judgment where all the unsaved, those who have never placed their faith in Jesus Christ, will find themselves as they see that their name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. But now we begin to turn our attention to some wonderful scriptures that I believe you will welcome today as we talk today and next week about the new heaven and the new earth and the glorious time that we'll have for all of eternity, those of you who know Jesus as your Savior. You cannot help but read these passages of Scripture and begin to be overjoyed in your spirit and to be thrilled to know that someday we'll enjoy a utopia like we've never read about before. Amen. Would you look at verse number 1, please? The Bible says, Revelation 21, verse number 1, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the water of life freely." He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the fearful, and unbelieving, and the abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and idolaters, and all liars 
shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. And there came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. And had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city. The gates thereof, the wall thereof, and the city lieth four square. The length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, in 140 and four cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of the angel." The building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was of pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus the eleventh adjacent, the twelfth an amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl. The street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass. Can you almost picture that right now? Wouldn't you like to be transported there right now? Oh, it'd be beautiful, wouldn't it? Be able to get away from all this insurance stuff you're dealing with today. It'd be good. But in the meantime, may we be faithful to point people to Jesus Christ and the fact that they can be there someday. Let's pray together, Lord. I thank you for today. You've ordained every one of these people to be here today. You've seen fit to draw them. There are many that are here called Calvary Baptist or home, but yet there are many who are visiting today, whether it be because of Samaritan's Purse or others who have felt compelled to come by. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would speak to them. Help us now to put everything aside, to focus on that which you have for us. I pray this all in Jesus' precious name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. When my wife and I were uh, in the plans for the honeymoon that we were going to take back in 1993, we did not have a whole lot of money to do anything, but we began meeting with a travel agent that we both knew, and we began talking about some of the opportunities. The travel agent began to point us towards a cruise, and we had never been on a cruise before. And it was exciting for us as we would sit down in the office and we would begin to look at some of the brochures of the Western Caribbean, some of the islands that we could go to possibly. And so we began to look at that and we began to read about some of the places that we could visit. 
And I'll tell you what, it was exciting as we were coming to that day for not only our wedding, but for that wonderful honeymoon and enjoying the places we had never been to before. Could I say to you, God has given to you a brochure, if you will, the Word of God that tells you what heaven will be like. These words that I read to you, the words that I'll read to you next week, and many other portions of Scripture describe something that is well beyond any bit of our imagination. Whatever you may think about heaven, whatever you may imagine, I'm going to tell you, it is far greater than all that. Because God has been preparing for all of these years a place for those who know Him as Savior where you can dwell forever. You know, heaven is mentioned about 500 times in the Scriptures and 50 times in the book of Revelation. People often start talking about heaven, and because we've never seen it personally, we often wonder, is heaven a real place? My friend, I want to tell you, heaven is real. Jesus is there in his glorified body. Christ is preparing that place for us and will one day come to take all of those who know him as Savior, and he'll take us to that glorious, prepared place. I love what John 14 says. Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. Are you troubled today about some things? Jesus said, don't let your heart be troubled because I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. I want to notice a few things here in this chapter that will help us understand this new heaven and new earth that is spoken of. First of all, I want you to notice in verse number 1 what I'm going to call the dissolving of the old heaven and earth. Right off the bat, John tells us that he sees a new heaven and a new earth. Now, we get the aspect of a new earth because we know that this earth is cursed with sin and, and it is just uh, it is so debauched and everything else. But we wonder to ourselves, what do we mean by a new heaven? Well, as you read through the Scriptures, there actually are three heavens that are referred to. The first heaven is the earth's atmosphere. Genesis 1.20, God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that hath life, and fowl that may fly above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. That's the sky. That's that first heaven, if you will. The second heaven is what we might say is the interstellar space. Genesis 15, verse 5 And he brought him forth abroad and said, this is to Abraham, God speaking, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. I remember before we got our electricity back on, it was beautiful without any city lights to just sit outside at nighttime and be able to see all those beautiful stars out there in that vast universe. How wonderful. That would be the second heaven, if you will. But the third heaven, according to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 30, Matthew 5, verse 34, is actually the dwelling place of God. So when the Bible talks about a new heaven, 
I don't believe that it is referring to the place where God dwells, but I believe that that atmosphere, that first heaven, is going to be cleansed once again and brought new. The Bible does not hide the fact that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. In fact, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 65, listen to this verse in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Isaiah 66, verse 22. For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make shall remain before me, saith the Lord. But I want to ask a question. How will God create or make a new heaven and a new earth? In our simple minds, really, there'd be one of two choices that God would do. Either he will take that heaven and earth and he'll annihilate them, or he will renovate them. There's a verse that's going to be put on your screen, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Let me just go ahead and read these here. The Bible says, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also in the works that are therein shall be burned up. Verse 11. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? And then verse 12. Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. When we think of the words that I read in there, fire, dissolve, burned up, what do we often think of? We think of destruction. We think to ourselves, well, God's just going to take this heaven and the atmosphere that's around the, uh, 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 the earth here, and God is just going to annihilate this, and he's going to create something brand new. But I want you to think with me for just a moment that I really believe personally that what God's going to do is actually renovate this earth. For instance, in the passage that I read to you in 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter, in writing that, uses the flood as an illustration of what will happen. In fact, in verse number 6 of the same chapter, he says, Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. Well, we all know the flood was devastating. It was, it was destructive, but it did not cause the earth to cease existing. But I want you to notice a second thing from this passage of Scripture is that when we think of fire, fire not only destroys, but it has the potential to purify. Those of you that are believers understand the judgment that we will face, not for our sins, but for our works. When the Lord will try our works for him, we will find out all those works that were wood, hay, and stubble, what will happen? The fire will burn those things up. But those things that are lasting for the Lord Jesus Christ, the precious stone, the gold, and the silver, those things will be purified and will be brought forth. But I must note that Acts 3.21 uses the word, the restitution of all things. 
I believe that God is not going to destroy in the sense that we have of annihilate and get rid of this, but that fire will do something in such a way that it will take away all of what we know of this world, the destructiveness of sin. There was a preacher of yesteryear that said these words about these thoughts. If God would have to annihilate the present cosmos, Satan would have won a great victory. Satan would have succeeded in so devastatingly corrupting the present cosmos and the present earth that God could do nothing with it but to blot it out totally of existence. You know, in 1988, there was a great fire at National Yellowstone National Park. In fact, at that time, it was the largest wildfire in recorded history of this particular park. At that time, there was about 800,000 acres or 36% of the park that were affected by the wildfires. And people thought that that fire was just going to destroy and that park was never going to come back. But it was amazing that after the fire, there was a certain strain of a jack pine that emerged shortly after the fire. The seeds that were in these cones here that were lodged inside there were able to come out because of the fire and under the intense heat they came forth and new life came forth. I don't know how God's going to do all this, but I'm going to say to you, my friend, that the new heaven and the new earth that we live on, sin will be no more. Whatever it is that you believe about what's going to happen, how God's going to do it, you can go ahead and be free with your opinion. But I want you to know something. God's going to make something new for us. It's beautiful. Now I want you to notice verses 1 through 8, the description of the new heaven and earth. The description. Well, it's interesting in creating this new heaven and new earth, God sees to it in verse number 1 that there's no more sea. Now, we're referencing here the oceans. For those of you who believe, and and I, I trust that if you believe the Bible, you believe in the flood, I believe personally that prior to the flood, we had no oceans like we know of today, the Atlantic Ocean, the Pacific Ocean. The lands were much closer together, and when the floods had broken up from down in the deep, it caused these lands to spread apart, and we know these continents as we do. But there's coming a day here where there'll be no more ocean. What do oceans do today? Oceans divide lands. They divide countries that may not have the same language or the same culture. But there'll be no more oceans. Oh, there'll be large bodies of water like lakes and rivers and seas. And there will be the the river of life that will be there. And we'll talk more about that next week. But I want you to notice the next thing in verse number 2 that you and I must grapple with of the description. The description of this new heaven and earth is that John mentions something else that is new. He talks about a new Jerusalem. Now, I want you to understand something, that this city, this new Jerusalem, is not synonymous with heaven. In other words, as you look at it, it is something that comes down out of heaven. It literally has dimensions that are spelled out. We read it in verse number 16. And it is new to us in viewing this, but there seems to be an indication in Scripture, and I don't have time to go through there, that this is something that has, God has been preparing for a period of time. 
Hebrews chapter 11, John chapter 14, Jesus has been preparing all of this a place for you and I. And I love this city because this city here as it's brought down as John sees it, he describes it as a city that is a adorned as a bride. Now, when we think of the bride and groom in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, we think of the relationship of the church, but that's not really the mention that is given here. When, Jesus, when John is referencing here that this city is adorned as a bride, he is given this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that this city has a freshness and a beauty that a bride has when she's ready for her marriage. Now, it might be today that when we start talking about a city, that doesn't seem to excite you. I know there's many of you out here that are not city slickers. You've grown up in the country. You've been on the farm. And anything to you as far as a city is just something that just seems disgusting to you and you want no part of it. But I want to share with you, as I read this week, a wonderful book. In fact, I'd encourage you to get it. Randy Alcorn wrote a years ago a book called Heaven. And he says that this city will be different. And I want to quote to you what he says. It'll have all the advantages we associate with earthly cities, but none of the disadvantages. The city will be filled with natural wonders, magnificent architecture, thriving culture, but it'll have no crime, pollution, sirens, traffic fatalities, garbage, or homelessness. Imagine with me moving through that city to enjoy the arts, the music, sporting events, without having to worry about a pickpocket, porn shops, drugs, or prostitution. I'm going to just tell you something. This is truly heaven on earth. But I want you to note the second thing about the description of this city and these verses here is what is there and what is not there. As I read these scriptures, I notice right off the bat who is there. Do you get it? It's God. Now, I want to say to you today that how wonderful the scripture will be fulfilled that Matthew 5, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Imagine that. Right now, we don't see God, but there's coming a day when you'll be in his presence forever. And I love the fact that the Bible talks about this tabernacle, if you will. Now, he uses the word tabernacle for a couple of reasons. Number one, man was known for building not necessarily a tabernacle, but a temple. But that was man's, man's uh, uh, creation and, and man's putting together. But God is saying that the tabernacle and the word tabernacle literally means God's dwelling with us. In fact, when the Bible says in John chapter 1, verse 14, how Jesus came and the Word came among us and dwelt among us, that Word is the same word we tra translate tabernacle, God dwelling amongst us. And how wonderful it is to know that in this city that there will be God, we'll see Him, we'll fellowship with Him like we've never known before. What a wonderful thought. 
And oh, it'll be incredible to be in God's presence. The greatest wonder of heaven will truly be that God will be there. We can enjoy fellowship with him for all eternity. My friend, the presence of God is the very essence of heaven. But now please notice what's not there. Really because of the radical difference from the latter earth, the description of the new earth uses negatives to show how different it is from today's experiences. Look, if you will, at verse number four. The Bible says there'll be no tears. I'll bet you in the last couple of weeks you have cried over something. Now, it says here that God's going to wipe away all tears. This phrase doesn't indicate that we're arriving there crying. And God has a big hanky right there at the pearly gates and he's wiping away all tears. That's not the essence of what it's talking about here. It simply means that there will be an absence of anything to cry about. What have you shed tears over? A lost love? Misfortune? Regret? Remorse? I want to tell you, there'll be no reason to cry up there, no tears at all. Oh, I love this, there'll be no more death. I miss those of this church that have passed on. I miss their presence. I miss their counsel. I miss their fellowship. But oh, there's coming a day when we'll not attend another funeral service. We'll not have to stand at the graveside and say, oh, this one has departed from us. But for all eternity, we will enjoy each other. No more death. There'll be no sorrow or crying. There'll be no more pain. Right now, you're probably sitting pretty comfortably, but when we get up to sing the invitation song, you'll feel those little cricks and creaks and everything else as you get up, and that, that hip starts hurting a little bit, and those joints are kind of work. I'm going to tell you something. There'll be no arthritis medication in heaven. Amen. There'll be no pills you have to worry about taking because there will be no more pain, and the former things will be passed away. And then the Bible says there'll be no more sin. Notice verse number 8. He lists here those that will not be in heaven. Now, this is not put in place in this part of Scripture to give an indication that somehow there'll be a second chance salvation. I want you to know that in the order of how Revelation was written, that there will be a time before this new heaven and new earth that all of those who do not know Christ as Savior will be cast into the lake of fire. But there's a reminder here that all of the fearful. Now, what is that? We say, well, I've shown some fear. I've been cowardly about some things. It's not talking about a physical cowardice, but it is a genuine commitment to Christ. My friend, I want to tell you something. If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, you'll be bold about letting other people know what you've done. If you trusted Christ as your Savior, would you just give me a hearty amen right now? All right, that sounded pretty bold. That was all right. But I want to tell you, those who know Christ as their Savior will not be ashamed of calling out His name and letting them know that they're His. The unbelieving, these are those who refuse to believe in Jesus Christ. The abominable, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars. 
And this is a category, if you will, a catalog, not necessarily exhaustive, but it will be all those who die in their sins. But I want you to notice that this verse number eight is in contrast to verse number seven, because God only knows two groups of people, those who are lost and those who are saved, those who are born again and those who have refused to trust Jesus as Savior. Verse number 8 gives us all of those who have refused to trust Christ as Savior. But verse number 7, look at it. He that overcometh shall inherit all things. You say, preacher, does that mean that by my willpower and by what I do, I'm getting to heaven? My friend, you're not saved by your good works. But 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 All those that are born again are overcomers in Jesus Christ. I want to tell you, if you've placed your faith in him, you've recognized that you're a sinner, that you, your sin will take you to a place called hell, but Jesus died to pay for your sins. If you believe in Jesus Christ, you're born again, you're an overcomer. How beautiful. But now notice verses 9 to 21, the design We talked about the dissolving of the old heaven, the old earth, the description of the new heaven, a new earth. But now notice the design, if you will. First of all, the majesty of the city in verses 9 through 11. The sinners just described will soon be forgotten amidst the glories of this heavenly city. And I want you to notice here, it's speaking of the very glory of God. I wish I had time to speak about the glory of God, to go into this in detail But the glory of God would be the the sum total of the attributes of God. God's glory in the scripture is seen as a blazing light. In fact, when the Lord Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, stood there at that Mount of Transfiguration, when, when he began to show to his disciples there who he truly was, the Bible gives a description of the glories that came through, the brightness of his glory. As we go through these scriptures in just a moment, think with me of all these stones that are on the foundations. Think of the streets of gold. Think of the pearly gates and everything else. And I'm telling you, the blaze of God's glory will shine throughout heaven. Oh, how wonderful it'll be. But the glory of this city is its majesty. It's described here as brilliant as Jasper. The city was pure gold. And I think when you and I look at all these, it's so wonderful. But now notice verses 12 to 14 the makeup of the city. It had a great wall, which means that the limits to the size of the city. A wall was always used for protection, but not in this case. Here the wall speaks of strength and eternal security. But now there's 12 gates that are mentioned where people may walk in and walk out. There's three gates at the north and at the south and at the west and at the east. And I want you to know that these gates, everybody who walks in, there's no hidden closets in this city. There's no place that you will not be welcome to. If you are born again and an overcomer in Jesus Christ, you can walk freely in and out of these gates. The walls have 12 foundation stones 
The stones have the names of the apostles. And again, these gates with the 12 tribes commemorates God's unique relationship with Israel. These foundation stones with the apostles commemorates God's unique relationship with the church. And oh, how wonderful to see this. But now notice verses 15 to 17, the measurement of the city. Here's an angel measuring the city. And the city is shown to be a square. And it's interesting here as the city walls are given, and I'm going to go ahead and just share with you the direction that is given, 1,380 miles in each direction. If we were to put this on a map, we would say that this city would cover roughly from Canada to the Gulf of Mexico, from the Atlantic Ocean to the state of Colorado. And this geometry helps us understand how the inhabitants of this city will have enough space. Notice, it'll be 1,400 feet long, 1,400 feet wide, 1,400 feet deep. There'll be 2,744,000 cubic feet of space. And in fact, it's been estimated by people much smarter than me that there would be enough space to hold 100 trillion people. You say to yourself, is that all just that heavenly city? No, that's just the capital that God has set up. But the whole universe is a place that we'll explore and enjoy forever. But now notice the materials of the city in the last few verses that I read. The wall, as we mentioned earlier, was made of jasper. Beautiful. A diamond-like gem that looks like glass. The city itself was made of pure gold. So along with the walls of Jasper, this city shows forth the flawless perfection by its clear colors. In fact, if you look at the foundation here and all these beautiful stones, I looked at them above uh, earlier and read them. How beautiful. In fact, we couldn't have gotten our new projectors in much better time than this past week to be able to show these stones. But I'm telling you, this won't even do justice because someday as you are there and you see those stones, you'll say, boy, I've never seen anything like it before. How beautiful all of these beautiful stones in this foundation. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Each gate was one large pearl. Now, you take one pearl, you can put it in your hand, but every gate was a large pearl. And I want to say that our God is amazing in what he makes. As I conclude today, I want you to notice something. We speak of these pearly gates. Oh, it's often talked about. We might tell jokes a little bit about people coming to the pearly gates, and we refer to it in our Bible. But I want you to know here, that even though the Bible doesn't indicate this, it seems to me that every time that we walk in and out of those gates, we'll notice those pearls. Some of you may have a pearl necklace either on you or at home. And whether you realize it or not, a pearl is made from an oyster, which is living flesh. And the way that that comes about is when that oyster receives a wound, it makes a pearl around the irritation. Think of this. Every time 
you and I come in and out of those gates someday, we will be reminded of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us so we could be there. Jesus died on that cross. He did it for you. He took those nails in his wrists there, his hands. He took those nails in his feet. He took that spear in his side, those irritations, those wounds. And he did it and shed his blood so you could be saved today. How wonderful to be able to walk in and out of those gates and be reminded of that sacrifice that Jesus made for me. I mentioned earlier, verses 7 to 8, there's only two groups of people. And today, as I look across this audience here, there's only two groups of people. Either you're here today and you're saved and you know it, or you're lost. Where are you today? Who are you? Well, as I conclude today, I have two concluding questions. Number one, do you know for sure that you'll be in this new heaven and new earth as we've described today? Now, I'll be honest with you, I couldn't do justice to describing this. But even the little bit that I could muster up in describing what this new heaven and new earth is all about, there shouldn't be a person in here that says, oh yeah, fooey on that. I don't, I don't care about that. My friend, I want to tell you something. The alternative is far worse. And I want to encourage you to place your faith in Jesus Christ so you can know that you'll be in this place. But second question I have for you is, if you do know you'll be there, what are you doing to bring others with you? 